Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good morning to those of you in Asia. Good evening to those of you in the United States. I'm Steve Orleans, president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and thrilled to be rolling out um, another of our two-way investment studies that we do with Tilo Heinemann and the uh, Rhodium Group. It's really been one of the great things over, how many years has it now been, Tilo? Six I think it's six. Six, yeah. yeah, like this. Um, so it's the sixth year we've done it. And it, you know, it's, it's terrific because so much of discussion about China is not data-driven. It's kind of speculative. It's not really knowing what's going on. And what Rhodium has done in partnership with the National Committee is really produce data to allow policymakers to make uh, hopefully rational decisions. Um, at this program, we're joined by uh, Tim Stratford and Anna Ashton, both of whom are uh, incredible experts in the area. Tim, I've known for more years than I can possibly acknowledge, and he is a partner at Covington and Burling, and, his, and Anna Ashton is now Senior Director of Government Affairs at the U.S.-China Business Council, uh, with long experience working on China in both the Defense Department, the U.S. Chamber, and the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. So what we'll do is we'll kick off with Tilo, uh, kind of talking about the data, talking about the results, then turn it over uh, to Tim, who will talk about kind of the view from Beijing, and then turn it over to Anna to talk about the view from Washington. And then I'll ask some questions, and then you are all free to ask questions. Um, and I will look at them and ask them on your behalf. But thank you all for joining us this morning or this evening. Thank our panelists and Tilo, thank you and Rhodium for really doing such great work with us. Thank you, Steve, and uh, welcome everyone. Um, I'm very grateful for the long partnership with the uh, National Committee on US-China Relations. Uh, and I'd like to thank uh, Anna and Tim uh, for joining us uh, tonight. Um, as always, for uh, the sixth year in a row, my mission is it to uh, uh, take uh, 15 to 20 minutes uh, at the outset of this session uh, to uh, introduce the most important uh, data points uh, for this year's report. And I uh, brought along uh, a few slides, which I'm going to uh, put up here. Uh, looks like um, that was successful. Um, and I'd like to start uh, um, this presentation with a slightly more historical perspective since we're in our year six. Um, I brought with me a, a chart that shows the past 20 years of uh, US-China capital flows, looking at the two types of investments that we, uh, we are uh, uh, covering here within the US-China Investment Project, um, FDI uh, and venture capital. Uh, and um, when we kind of look back um, uh, to uh, 2008 and 2009, when we had our last uh, global financial crisis, uh, the story was fairly uh, straightforward and easy. Um, almost all capital flows between uh, China and the US was US FDI going into China uh, and not really much else. 
uh, in part catalyzed by the global financial crisis in uh, 08, 09, um, that created some buying opportunities for Chinese investors uh, and also a lot of liquidity within the Chinese uh, economy. Uh, that fueled that first uh, growth of Chinese outbound investment that you see here in the red bars uh, coming up in 2010, 11. Um, and uh, since 2013-14, uh, we've seen, we've witnessed a, a very rapid expansion of uh, two-way venture capital um, as well. Uh, growth in both directions, in all two types uh, of flows, have driven two-way uh, investment all the way up to around $70 billion in uh, 2016. Um, but looking at the last uh, four or five years, uh, we've seen the opposite trend again. Um, uh, so since 2016, um, initially driven by Beijing's decision to uh, backpedal uh, on some of the liberalization steps it had done on the outbound investment side, but then also greater scrutiny on the U.S. side and certainly uh, the new uh, FIRMA legislation that beefed up the CFIUS uh, uh, investment screening regime is an important milestone. Uh, and then the broader um, um, disruption in the, uh, the U.S.-China bilateral relationship uh, and growing uh, technology competition um, have weighed on two-way investment flows. And really looking at 2020, adding the pandemic on top of that, we've really come full circle uh, at only $22 billion of two-way investment flows, looking at FDI and venture capital again. Um, so really pretty much back to uh, the same levels as 10 years ago in 2010. Uh, uh, and uh, that is, uh, of course, a level that is shockingly low for the world's uh, two largest economies. Um, so moving along, um, I would like to take uh, a few minutes to just dive a little bit deeper into uh, the patterns that we saw in uh, 2020. Starting with FDI, just, just getting everybody on the same page. Um, FDI uh, usually um, captures investments that create long-term ownership uh, with uh, significant ownership control. Uh, either greenfield projects or acquisitions uh, of stakes 10% uh, or higher. Uh, and I think the important context uh, around 2020 numbers is that we usually uh, see this type of investment, this type of cross-border investment drop very heavily during global recessions. So this is a more uh, historical perspective, uh, taking data from the OECD on global FDI flows. And you can see uh, during uh, uh, all three crises uh, that we have on the chart, first 2000, 2001, a big drop in global FDI flows, the next drop in 2008-9, and then exactly the same happened in 2020. Uh, so global FDI flows were down about 38, 40% uh, last year, just as context uh, for uh, the numbers I'm going to show next. Um, so starting with um, um, U.S. Um, FDI uh, into China. Um, our data set covers both greenfield investments and acquisitions. Um, and at the outset, um, I have to say it was extremely tricky uh, to compile this data for this year uh, because you had both uh, volatility and then a number of uh, economic, uh, macroeconomic factors that have, have really distorted uh, the data. Um, disruptions. Um, in the first half of the year, uh, a large part of the Chinese economy, especially in the first quarter, was, was largely shut down uh, because of the pandemic. And so a lot of the, the big uh, uh, construction projects by foreign companies were put on ice. 
multinationals have decided to cut uh, capex, um, and um, so a lot of it came came almost to a halt. Uh, as Beijing was able to get the virus under control, a lot of that came roaring back in the third and fourth quarter, uh, very aggressively, as there was a lot of demand from the from the world for for Chinese-made um, um, goods and exports, and so we have a lot of volatility related to that, and was very tricky for us to uh, um, um, trace back some of these uh, changes. Um, the second factor that was really difficult this year is um, we've seen a lot of uh, uh, interventions by central banks in, in global macroeconomic dynamics. Currency and exchange rates and interest rates have uh, moved fairly wildly. Uh, and one of those results is that um, Chinese FDI data has been very much distorted. and. Um, want to just venture into that really quickly because it, it is really important um, for um, all of us to understand when we discuss uh, um, FDI figures and especially when we read about FDI uh, figures uh, in the news. Um, this chart here shows you um, um, data on global FDI um, into China. So the yellow bars uh, that you see uh, here on this chart are quarterly inflows as captured by China's balance of payments statistics, which are generally used by the IMF and others. Uh, and as you can see here, uh, in the last couple of quarters, China has been attracting huge inflows of FDI. Uh, it was by far the biggest recipient in 2020 of FDI globally. Uh, and every quarter uh, since, uh, since the, the mid-year, it's been going up and up and up. And in fact, in the first quarter of 2021, China has set a new quarterly record of FDI inflows. Now, the other... Um, data set that's shown here uh, in orange uh, is an alternative data set by the Ministry of Commerce that's showing utilized FDI. So money that's actually being approved and spent by foreign companies more, more on the real economy side. Uh, and as you can see, there's a really, really big difference between the two numbers. Uh, and Beijing really likes to tell uh, the uh, story in yellow because it shows uh, China, China remains very attractive to foreign companies. But a lot of what that difference, difference tells you is uh, that um, um, there are what we call intra-company money movements really distorting those, uh, uh, those flows. So it's basically multinational companies that have operations in China putting money into China because number one, you get much better interest rates on your deposits or on a uh, risk-free assets. So about three, three and a half percent if you put it in, uh, in Chinese government bonds, for example, or, or in a savings account. And two, because of all the demand for Chinese goods and the lack of Chinese tourists, you have built-in currency appreciation expectations when you have your assets in China. So uh, in short, all of these distortions are showing up in those FDI numbers. And while there has been um, a, 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 an uptick in foreign investment in China, a lot of the big figure numbers that you read out there are really, really reflecting macroeconomic dimensions and not so much real economy trends. So that was the second really big caveat when you look at um, some of these FDI statistics. I'm gonna go back to our numbers. We are compiling figures based more from the real economy perspective and doing it that way with all the caveats I mentioned. Uh, we come out at the end of this volatile year uh, at about 87 billion dollars, which would be about a 33% drop compared to what we've seen uh, in uh, 2019, uh, and a very similar level, actually, to what we've seen during uh, 2009, the previous uh, 
uh, global financial crisis. Um, greenfield investment has generally been holding up and especially uh, came roaring back in the second half of the year. Uh, what was the main difference to last year is that M&A foreign acquisitions into China was hit very hard, which is not surprising given all the travel restrictions and, and challenges uh, uh, for uh, due diligence. Uh, and so M&A has dropped to the lowest level uh, in, in 10 years uh, in uh, 2020 based on the numbers that we've compiled. Um, taking a quick look at the uh, industry uh, composition of US FDI in China, you're really seeing a, a, a broad-based decline across all sectors reflecting some of these disruptions. Um, autos has been the biggest recipient uh, in uh, 2020, uh, partially driven by a Tesla and other uh, electric vehicle investments uh, being made on, on the mainland. Food has been a very strong in 2020, driven both by organic growth, but also a handful of um, acquisitions in the food sector. Um, we also record a remarkable recovery or uptick in uh, basic materials which could extend further um, given uh, uh, that a few US multinationals, including Exxon, um, have uh, set up um, fairly significant uh, greenfield investments uh, in uh, Southern China. Um, and while some of these, uh, some of these uh, trends, especially um, autos um, and, um, and basic materials are reflecting uh, some uh, progress on policy liberalization and market access, um, there are other sectors uh, that have a more mixed uh, track record uh, in terms of uh, policy impact. Um, so we're looking, for example, at the uh, financial services industry. Uh, some firms have uh, made some good progress buying out their joint venture partners, but others, and I think most prominently uh, Vanguard, have moved in the opposite direction and basically given up plans to run a wholly owned uh, mutual fund business, in, in, in this case, on the mainland. So some some, some of the data provides some evidence that those steps are working, but other data points um, show us that it's, we're not quite there yet. And I'm sure um, we're gonna talk about that um, a little later when we uh, discuss uh, Chinese policy. Um, looking forward, the momentum that we see building, that we saw building in 20, uh, in the second half of the year has extended in the first quarter of 2021 in a very strong way. So. When we do this again, hopefully in a year from now, I think we'll look back and we will have seen a rebound uh, in uh, US FDI into China, into double digit territory for uh, 2021. Uh, there is very strong uh, investment, especially in Greenfield. Uh, and um, I don't think we're gonna see a massive uh, uh, growth from pre-pandemic levels, but we'll certainly get to a, a similar um, ballpark as, uh, uh, in 2018-2019, uh, based on what we're seeing so far. Moving forward, looking at uh, Chinese um, FDI to the US, the story uh, is a little bit more um, volatile. And as I mentioned earlier, um, Chinese FDI had already declined very significantly from almost 50 billion uh, uh, at its uh, peak in 2016 to less than 10 billion in both 2018 and 2019. Um, that has really continued to move sideways. Um, our number comes out at about $7.2 billion of completed Chinese uh, investments uh, in uh, 2020. That's a little bit up actually from the previous year, uh, but um, it was also heavily concentrated and it was really just a handful um, of 
transactions that make up for the total, uh, for most of the total. Um, one of the surprising things, um, I think, for the broader debate here, and, and looking back at some of the historical antecedents uh, and some of the work that we've done um, earlier uh, uh, um, with the National Committee, is that we're really not seeing a major um, growth of Chinese greenfield investments into the US, which what you would usually expect when there's uh, trade friction and trade barriers in place. Um, so um, there is a bit of growth, but you're not, we're far from seeing a, a sort of a Japan style expansion uh, of local manufacturing in the US. Um, and finally, one more um, item to mention is that we have seen divestitures uh, continue. Um, the big deal was certainly uh, Ingram Micro uh, that uh, was uh, spun off again by uh, uh, now bankrupt H&A Group. Uh, we had uh, Wanda selling down some of its stake uh, in, uh, in uh, AMC, uh, ironically uh, propelled by uh, some of the uh, uh, um, uh, GameStop related uh, Wall Street bets uh, dynamics there. Uh, and then we also had a big deal, oceanwide uh, Genworth falling apart after 16 uh, uh, extensions. Um, so pretty much a continuation of uh, the trends that we've seen in 2018, 2019. And so far, no major signs of an uptick. Uh, and kind of really going back to last year, I think the big takeaway is we have not seen uh, Chinese distressed asset buying spree uh, in the US as many had predicted uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, and um, while I do expect some recovery in 2021, um, we have a lot of persistent Chinese policy barriers and then certainly uh, uh, regulatory and political um, risk remains very strong on, on the US side um, as well. Um, in a distribution, we really don't need to talk much about that at, at, at this low level. Um, um, remarkable, perhaps, that entertainment and consumer products are uh, the single biggest sectors. So uh, um, industries that are um, maybe not initially uh, uh, jumping out in terms of national security sensitivity, not surprisingly. Uh, and um, kind of looking forward, the, the big question for me is whether an overall improvement in uh, political relations or a less volatile uh, policymaking style by the Biden administration can uh, inject uh, enough um, confidence that dealmaking in some of those non-sensitive areas uh, is, is coming back. Uh, and then um, the second element, of course, is whether um, the, um, the outlook that the Biden administration could keep some of the tariffs uh, in place for longer uh, could finally lead to a, uh, a greater propensity uh, on the Greenfield FDI side uh, on, uh, on behalf of Chinese investors. Moving on uh, to uh, the venture capital side um, of our um, data set, also, uh, just as a, as a reminder, venture capital uh, refers to um, early stage uh, uh, technology uh, financing, which uh, usually uh, um, reflects smaller stakes, but it can include a significant influence and oversight. Uh, and starting with US uh, venture investments uh, in uh, China, uh, historically looking back, um, US companies, US investors have always played a uh, fairly significant role in nurturing the Chinese tech ecosystem. 
um, and going back all the way to the early 2000s, but it really started uh, increasing and growing rapidly um, in uh, 2013, 2014, uh, and reached uh, its, its height so far in uh, 2018 with more than 500 individual investments and uh, close to $20 billion invested, uh, which uh, reflects a lot of late stage funding rounds for uh, gigantic Chinese tech companies. Um, since 2018, we've seen a, a big drop in both the number and especially uh, the value of US venture capital uh, in Chinese startups. Um, the single most important variable is not policy, but a, a very sharp cool down in China's technology sector. Um, so just to give you a dimension, um, 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 in 2017, 2018, uh, we had around 14 to 15,000 individual funding rounds for Chinese companies uh, on the mainland. That number has come down all the way to about four to 5,000 in uh, 2020. So a, a big, I wouldn't say burst of the bubble, but a significant slowdown uh, in, in the Chinese um, venture capital mania that we've seen, which is reflected here in the numbers. Um, but certainly political variables have also been important. Um, we've seen much, much greater scrutiny for uh, US investors, big venture capital investors, uh, uh, in terms of their um, uh, patriotism or funding problematic Chinese technology companies uh, that are associated with, um, with um, problematic um, types of technologies. Uh, and we certainly also have seen uh, um, much greater uh, regulatory risk being injected into the um, into the venture capital sector overall, with Beijing's crackdown on technology firms, and then more recently with uh, the the random political interventions in uh, IPOs and auto market exit um, strategies. Um, um, of course, most prominently embodied by um, Ant Group's uh, failed IPO in Hong Kong. Uh, in terms of um, industry um, um, trends and technology trends. There are a lot more details um, in the report, um, but I thought I'll bring one with you, uh, one chart with me here today uh, that shows uh, um, uh, the decline in US funding for Chinese tech companies comparing 2017-18 with 2019 and 2020. Um, and not surprisingly, uh, almost all um, industry verticals or technology verticals see a decline. Um, um, the big and only outlier really is life sciences, where investment still continues to grow, uh, uh, continue to grow over the past two years. And uh, perhaps uh, the sectors uh, that are worth mentioning as being less prone to slowdowns are uh, uh, big data, artificial intelligence, and manufacturing. So these uh, tech verticals have seen uh, um, greater than average uh, interest by uh, US investors over the past two years compared to the overall uh, set of Chinese uh, tech companies. Switching over to the other direction, Chinese VC in uh, American uh, tech startups, um, that has been uh, not a major story before 2014, almost no flows uh, existed, but then ramped up really quickly. Uh, and then in part triggering uh, that uh, firma legislation in 2017-18, um, um, similar to US venture investment in China, 2018 uh, was the high point uh, so far and activity has declined 
since then, both in volume and value terms, um, but certainly not as sharply as flows in the other direction. Uh, for uh, 2020, uh, we see some quite interesting patterns here. The, as, you, as you can see from the, the line, the transaction count has declined further to about 250 individual uh, fundraising round participations, but the um, investment value actually went up compared to 2019 uh, due to a number of uh, fairly um, uh, um, big later stage uh, funding rounds, including uh, Tencent, I believe, invested in Reddit, for example. So um, it, it, it is a reflection of uh, the maturity of the companies that um, uh, was invested in, and certainly also uh, valuations in the US have gone through the roof uh, over the past uh, 18 months. Um, based on the pandemic and other um, dynamics. Um, looking forward, um, I think broadly speaking, uh, a Chinese interest in the U.S. sector in, in the U.S. tech sector uh, continues, but regulatory scrutiny, of course, remains a major variable. Um, um, there is, uh, especially, some uncertainty about pharma enforcement. Uh, in terms of um, um, uh, venture capital and, and smaller stakes, um, but the broad context of uh, US-China um, technology decoupling um, is also looming over, uh, over this, uh, uh, this type of flow with a lot, a lot of new initiatives uh, uh, partially coming from Congress that are or that could reshape uh, US-China technology dynamics. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more um, in the discussion. Um, this is the same perspective as I've showed before uh, for uh, US, we see in China. So this compares Chinese interest in US startups at the peak 2017-18 versus 2019-2020. Um, and we're seeing very similar um, um, patterns. The biggest, the single biggest attraction remains life sciences, uh, oncology, um, health tech related investments. Uh, and we're also um, seeing anything related to big data, AI, and uh, fintech. And of course, over the past 12 to 18 months, cryptocurrency has become uh, a major attraction as well. Those, um, those tech verticals are holding up better uh, than uh, the average. Um, before setting up for the discussion and, and transitioning over to, to more of the policy side of things, um, I'd like to summarize one more uh, important trend that is really important for uh, the 2020 uh, picture. Um, as I explained, we have initially focused uh, um, on FDI exclusively and then over time added venture capital uh, as an important area of public policy interest. Uh, and uh, fast forward to today, one of the most important areas of uh, policy interest in Washington and elsewhere right now is portfolio investment. So financial holding of equities uh, and bonds. And um, that has become an interest in, in Washington and elsewhere uh, because uh, there have been some very important uh, changes on the policy side that have reignited um, um, some of these flows. China has traditionally been very cautious to not allow uh, those kind of short-term inflows or uh, only allow them in a very constrained uh, manner through specific channels. Uh, in the past two and a half, three years, Beijing has moved fairly uh, rapidly 
to create additional channels for foreign inflows into onshore Chinese bond uh, and equity securities uh, through uh, stock uh, and bond index inclusions, um, stock and bond connect schemes and other uh, things. So what you see on this chart here uh, are uh, quarterly inflows. So Everything above zero is, is inflows, foreigners buying Chinese bonds uh, and stocks, uh, and everything below is outflows. And you can see that inflows have really gained traction, traction based on some of these policy changes, along with uh, some of those macroeconomic uh, uh, dynamics that I described earlier. Uh, and so you have a lot more um, um, activity uh, in, uh, in those passive portfolio investment uh, channels. Um, and there's a lot more interest from the DC side and what that means uh, in terms of pension funds holding potentially problematic um, equities uh, and the likes. Similar to, to FDI and VC, the data situation is very, very murky uh, because these flows are uh, very quick and they're often intermediated through offshore locations. And while it is not possible for us uh, to track these kind of transactions based on uh, the same type of um, bottom-up methodology that we use for FDI and VC. Um, what we've done is we have uh, in January released a report that tries to take stock of, uh, of these flows and um, um, corrects uh, uh, the official figures for some of these distortions. And we find that US-China portfolio investment or financial flows, financial investment totals more than 3.3 trillion uh, um, uh, at the end of uh, 2020, which is twice as much as uh, what the official figures show. So a quite interesting additional layer on top of FDI and VC, and I encourage all of you uh, to uh, check out that report, which is publicly available uh, on our website uh, and um, it is an important additional um, 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 story for 2020 and uh, beyond. Um, moving over to uh, uh, the, the discussion uh, part, let me just take another two minutes here uh, just to maybe set the table a bit more for uh, the Q&A. Um, going into 2021, uh, the expectation is very much that uh, along with a normalizing uh, global economy, uh, we uh, should see some of these flows going back to pre-pandemic patterns uh, a normalization of both FDI and venture capital flows uh, after an abnormal uh, 2020. Um, at the same time, there are a lot of uncertainties, both in terms of markets um, as well as policy. And um, um, just putting up some of the things that we are watching for uh, 2021 in particular. Uh, on the Chinese side, one of the things that was the most puzzling to me or the most surprising to me is how uh, strictly China uh, continued to control capital outflows uh, throughout the second half of 2020. Um, we had massive inflows, a lot of appreciation pressure on the currency, yet there wasn't really any uh, movement to uh, let households or companies, private companies, take greater amounts of, of, of money um, um, outside of China. So there was a very uh, strict continuation of that, of that um, conservative stance towards capital outflows. And I think going forward, that remains one of the single most important um, policy items to watch. Um, market access, of course, remains important. There's been some progress, but uh, um, certainly not 
uh, enough yet to say there's really a level playing field for foreign firms in China. And I'm sure Tim uh, and Anna have a lot uh, <clears throat> to talk about that. Um, dual circulation and this broader um, um, push for uh, greater uh, technology independence uh, is another important variable um, that is important for both the inbound and outbound side. And then finally, uh, from a, from a long-term perspective, uh, uh, one really important question is to what extent this formalization of portfolio inflow channels could uh, create an alternative uh, option for some, for some foreign investors, talking private equity firms and others, uh, to generate China exposure without actually owning the whole thing on the ground. Um, switching over to the US side, as I said, I think one of the most important questions is whether that return to uh, due process and uh, uh, and a more um, more uh, uh, more normal policy, a greater balance between different agencies uh, in the interagency process for CFIUS, for example, could reinject, could regenerate some of the trust uh, uh, among Chinese investors to uh, uh, put money into uh, U.S. operations in non-sensitive sectors. Um, there is some uh, uncertainty still about uh, implementation of. Uh, 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 the defensive policies that have been enacted, most importantly, uh, Firma and ECRA, but then we also have a whole slew of next generation policies that are being uh, cooked up right now in, in Congress and within, within the administration on supply chain safety, uh, antitrust competition policy, data protection, industrial and tech policy. So there are a lot of new initiatives that could change the game for uh, quite a few Chinese uh, market uh, participants. And then Last but not least, um, I think it is really important to kind of broaden it a bit more from the bilateral relationship to uh, take into account broader geopolitical developments. Uh, uh, we are seeing quite a few signs that um, there is more of a coordinated approach within the OECD in key regulatory areas like investment screening and export controls, um, uh, especially uh, apparent in Europe at the moment. Uh, and then of course, um, uh, one layer above those um, narrow regulatory questions is uh, this uh, broader uh, discussion that is happening in Canberra, in, in Berlin, in Washington about uh, the overall compatibility of uh, the Chinese economic system with uh, market economies that could um, also have a big impact on how both US as well as Chinese investors feel about uh, uh, future capital deployment uh, in each other's uh, economies. So I'm going to stop here uh, and uh, hope that was uh, an interesting run through data. Pass it back to Steve to get the panel started. Right. Well, it's you have packed a ton into that. So let me just turn it over for a perspective on the ground in Beijing to Tim Stratford. Thanks a lot, Steve. Uh, it's really an honor to be invited to participate on this panel with Tilo and, and with Anna. Um, I think the, the study results that Tilo's just shared with us are very, very helpful. It's, it's very, very useful to get this hard data. I would say that the results of the study uh, match uh, what my expectations would be quite closely. And also, I think that the explanations that Tilo's provided for declines we've seen and for other trends also seem spot on. Uh, speaking from the perspective of the business community here in Beijing, I think uh, the biggest questions for us are, where are we headed now? And what sorts of investments make sense going forward? 
Uh, and I would say that uncertainty about these two questions is the largest impediment to future investment. Um, in 1921, we're beginning to move beyond the effects of the pandemic to a certain extent, but travel is still very difficult to and from China. And the borders here are likely to be controlled for quite some time uh, because uh, China has focused on controlling spread of the virus within the country and they've done you know, a very good job of that. But because uh, most of the population is not yet vaccinated, they still have to focus on border control as, as long as uh, the pandemic is still not under control in other countries. And so that means it's likely to continue for some time. Um, for this and other reasons, it seems that both the Chinese government and MNCs are reassessing the appropriate role for exports, uh, for expats in China. Uh, there are a lot of people that just haven't been able to return. And even if the senior people can return, they're not allowed to bring their families. Uh, and so uh, companies are reassessing, well, how many expats do we need? And frankly, we're seeing some evidence that at least uh, in some parts of the government, they're also pleased to see uh, companies move to have more of their senior positions filled by PRC nationals instead of, uh, instead of by ex expatriates. Uh, and we're also seeing uh, that if you're not in a company that seemed as uh, essential to China's uh, uh, business um, ambitions, um, and also if you're staffing an NGO, if you're a teacher at a school, um, people like this are just having a hard time returning. And so this is affecting the way people are viewing China as a place where they want, they want to have their career to a, to a certain extent. Um, I'd also say that we're seeing that local governments are rather cautious because of political trends. It used to be that local governments would uh, bend over backwards to show that they were still going to be very welcoming to foreigners and to foreign investments and offer special incentives and special accommodations. And now we're seeing that some of the local governments are beginning to feel more cautious because of the, the, the general political atmosphere that they feel coming out, out of Beijing. Um, of course, local governments still have a strong incentive to welcome uh, foreign investors and, and, and try to make things as easy and, and, uh, and attractive for them as possible. But there's a bit of more of a hesitancy to do that now that we're seeing uh, most recently. Um, Another effect of the pandemic, besides the travel restrictions and things related to that, have been uh, that there's a heightened focus on, on supply chain resiliency. And so that means that some companies are deciding to uh, divert sourcing uh, so that it's not all coming out of China, but coming out of, uh, out of some other places. And so I think this is likely to have a, a long-term impact on some of the investment decisions that are being made. So that's that's the pandemic. And so I think there's uh, there's still going to be some uh, longer-term impact of, of things that people have learned through the pandemic. But in other ways, the pandemic has simply accelerated uh, movements uh, that we've already seen that are driven by other trends. Um, some of these are economic. For example, China may not any longer be the lowest cost producer. And so that's prompted some companies over the last number of years to begin moving some of their manufacturing out of, out of China. But also, I think um, most of the uh, trends that are having the biggest effect are related to the geopolitical situation. Um, the different paths being taken by the two countries, each country's more determined response to actions being taken by the other country, uh, and also uh, diminishing 
uh, long-term prospects that people in various industry sectors see for successful investments in the other country. Um, so in short, the business community is, is acknowledging that US-China relations have irrevocably and fundamentally changed following each government's more determined efforts over the past four years to address some longstanding issues. Um, and, and it seems clear that negotiation of a new basis and rules of engagement between the two countries is going to take several years. And so businesses are going to have to leverage a solid understanding of the underlying dynamics in order to be able to navigate what we expect will be a pretty prolonged period of uncertainty. So why do I think that this uncertainty is gonna be relatively long lasting? Well, um, first of all, uh, I think China is largely waiting for the US to get its act together. You don't have significant policy changes all of a sudden in China, but you have a new US administration. And so the new US administration is doing a review to come up with a new China policy. But at the same time, they're also doing a review to come up with a new trade policy that reflects priorities in the Biden administration that are quite a bit different from what we've seen in traditional trade policy going back the last decade or two. So that's, that's an undertaking uh, that's underway. Uh, and then after we have a new China policy and a new trade policy, we need to have a new China trade policy that needs to fit in with that. And then these policies uh, need to uh, secure consensus within the executive branch and with Congress. Uh, and then uh, the administration has said that they're not going to just be unilateral in the way they approach China. They're going to coordinate much more with like-minded uh, trading partners. And so there has to be some consensus building with other countries. And all of these uh, new policies and consensus building exercises are not going to be easy because there are a lot of complex issues and priorities that are pulling in opposing directions, and you have to find the right sort of balance. For example, uh, USTR's uh, trade agenda for 2021 lists nine priority concerns that they want the trade policy to address. Um, what is it going to mean to have a more worker-centric trade policy? Um, and how is that going to affect our trade relations with other countries? And how is it going to affect uh, the trade policy that we come up with China. But there are a whole list of these priorities that, that have to be balanced. Um, and also our trade policy needs to be um, recalibrated to, to be more coordinated with our national security concerns. I mean, one of the reasons that I think uh, the original trade negotiations between the US and China broke down was because on the one hand, Ambassador Lighthizer was uh, pressing China to uh, reduce some of the subsidies in key high-tech sectors. And at the same time he was doing that, other parts of the US government were trying to cut off China's access to some of those technologies. And if you're the Chinese government, the only reasonable conclusion is we'd better double and triple our subsidies rather than move in the direction that the USTR is trying to push us. And so we have to coordinate our national security concerns with our trade policy. So then, when the US has figured what its positions are going to be and is aligned with like-minded trading countries, then the trade negotiations with China will, will really be uh, uh, able to begin. But the US and China have to establish a new framework for how they're gonna conduct these discussions. And these are issues that have generally proven intractable in the past. So these are the things that have to be sorted out. And as long as this is happening, 
I, I think there's going to be a lot of uncertainty about uh, investment. And I think the trend that uh, that Tilo's data showed that, that the investment has been in decline over the last number of years is a, a reflection of these underlying concerns that remain uh, unresolved. So in the meantime, uh, as companies are looking at investment decisions, we need to understand the goals and the concerns of both governments related to our own specific industries, because this is a very industry specific uh, analysis. And then uh, in our companies, we need to fashion strategies that will reasonably address the goals and the concerns that both of the governments have. Then we need to maintain good lines of communication to make sure that what we understand is current. And then we need to prepare backup plans for alternative scenarios in case they unfold, because there are certain, certainly a lot of different ways some things might, might, might pan out. And so that's sort of where we're sitting today. Companies uh, do not want to leave China. They, they see market opportunities. They see the value in the bilateral relationship. But uh, as long as these uncertainties exist, I don't think we're going to see major changes away from the trends that, that, uh, that this new study have pointed out. And, I, and I'll, I'll leave my introductory comments at that point. Okay, and, and I was hoping we'd hear slightly more an optimistic view than that, but okay. Um, let's turn to Anna, because I'm not sure Washington is going to be a heck of a lot more optimistic than that, but give us the perspective from DC. Yeah, sadly, I, I don't think that I'm going to be able to uh, shine a happier light on things. So Thilo noted that Congress is busy cooking up all kinds of legislation, and Tim mentioned the uncertainty driving reluctance by companies to move forward with investments really in both directions. I'm going to focus mostly on Congress, and yes, indeed, they are busy cooking China-related legislation that is only deepening the uncertainty. Um, in this Congress, we're currently tracking 158 or so China-related proposals. We're currently on pace to outstrip China proposals in the last Congress, which topped 550. And to put that last Congress's China proposals in perspective, comparing, um, comparing the last Congress's China proposals to the 107th Congress's proposals to do with counterterrorism, and that was 2001-2002, right after the attacks, uh, there were only 100 related proposals during that fight, the bipartisan resolve to ensure that there was legislation to prevent any future terrorist attacks in the United States. So by that measure, the sense of China as a menace among members of Congress right now and for the last couple of years would seem to far exceed the sense of Al-Qaeda as a menace in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. To put it in a different perspective, though, maybe a, a more positive light, there were um, 16,000 bills and resolutions introduced in the last Congress. And as is customary, only a fraction of those 344 became law. And of the 344 passed, related. To add context and reason to remain calm, while we have an awful lot of China-related proposals already circulating in this Congress, they too are just a fraction of the 5,000 or more bills and resolutions that have been introduced since January. Lawmakers are still actually mostly focused on domestic issues such as the coronavirus pandemic, economic recovery, and confirming Biden administration nominees, but China is a real hot button issue, particularly in the Senate right now. And because the Senate has been so busy, I wanted to run through what's on the agenda there, 
Some of it involves specific efforts to limit Chinese investment, but the scope of the Senate's efforts to address the China challenge, as they call it, is really far broader. That context, I think, is important to understanding that there are real political factors here in the United States that are creating a climate that is anything but inviting to Chinese FDI. Um, so <clears throat> Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has repeatedly stressed since February that he wants to expedite legislation to address the China challenge, and this is widely seen as a bipartisan priority. He brought his much-touted China package for a cloture vote this week, um, finalizing what's in the package and ending debate on it. He said he will bring it to the floor for Senate passage sometime before May 28th, when lawmakers leave for Memorial Day weekend. Maybe he won't, but uh, that, is, that is the stated goal. The Schumer package came together as the United States Innovation and Competition Act of 2021. The cloture vote for the bill was 86 to 11. It can now go to the floor for a final Senate vote, which could happen again anytime in the next few days or the next couple of weeks. And it includes several bills from different committees in the Senate that are bipartisan bills that were rolled into this package as amendments. There's the Endless Frontier Act, which was introduced originally by Senator Schumer and Senator Young um, and came out of the Commerce Committee. There's the Strategic Competition Act from the Foreign Relations Committee, the Safeguarding American Innovation Act from the Homeland Security Committee, and the Meeting the China Challenge Act from the Banking Committee. This has been a highly fluid situation for a couple of months now, but the idea from the, from the start has been uh, to get enough senators behind the bill to achieve a supermajority or better so that the House opts to not mess with the text and just takes the bill straight to the floor. Pelosi can very probably be counted on to put it right on the floor if it goes to the House. And we know there's ongoing communication between the chambers, but it isn't yet clear to us what the real support is on that side or how many votes we should ultimately expect the bill to get on the Senate side. <clears throat> it's odds of passing in the Senate are looking strong based on closure, but the votes against closure may be telling. Um, the 11 no votes were all cast by Republican senators, and the immediate big standouts here were Senator Crepo and Senator Risch, since their ranking on finance and foreign relations respectively, and both committees were closely involved in this process from the beginning. Risch indicated during the foreign relations markup of the Strategic Competition Act that he wasn't in favor of it being attached to a broader China package, but he didn't seem adamant, more like leaning no. And Crapo is a little bit less surprising of a no vote since Senate Finance Republican members have expressed reservations about the speed of this process um, and aspects of the bill from the beginning, and there's no finance provision that's been included in the bill. So it's possible that these Republicans will um, influence the, the final vote in the Senate um, so that there's not as significant a majority as is the goal. Maybe they'll tip the scales a little bit, but uh, I, I think the odds are low. Rundown of what's in this package. The Endless Frontier Act is the anchor for the Senate China package. It's a multi-billion dollar funding proposal that would make domestic investment and research development and manufacturing in, in 10 critical technology areas, a lot of which overlap actually with China's Made in, Ch in China 2025 plan. It's important to note that although the, it's billed as legislation to compete with China, most of the Endless Frontier Act focuses on building out domestic infrastructure to be competitive with China. Uh, certainly, the funding is aimed at domestic rather than foreign companies, though, and Chinese companies in general are explicitly excluded from receiving that funding. The Strategic Competition Act from Senate Foreign Affairs uh, was was it went through markup and passed through committee late last month. Um, nothing here was specifically investment focused, but 
Chairman Menendez and his remarks during that markup framed the bill as an unprecedented bipartisan effort to mobilize all United States strategic, economic, and diplomatic tools for an Indo-Pacific strategy that will allow us to truly confront the challenges China poses to our national and economic security. That's, that's a quote. Um, noteworthy components of the final version include funding for supply chain diversification, uh, which has been mentioned already, several provisions to compete with China's belt and road financing globally. It also calls for dialogues with U.S. allies on technology standards, as well as a committee on foreign investment in the United States review mechanism for foreign contributions to higher education institutions above a certain threshold. And perhaps most striking among the bill's provisions, though not explicitly about investment, um, is a requirement for a diplomatic boycott of the 2022 Beijing Olympics. That was introduced by Senator Romney and Senator Kane, and it would ban U.S. government funding of any official delegation traveling to the Olympics. It doesn't mention a commercial boycott, um, and it still allows for athletes to participate. And there's a clause that would allow the Secretary of State to waive the diplomatic boycott if conditions justified it, but um, that made it into this final China package that Schumer will be holding a vote on. Uh, another piece, the Safeguarding American Innovation Act. Uh, that is a bill that was reintroduced from the last Congress by Senator Rob Portman, Republican of Ohio, and it would address Chinese investment in U.S. research and higher education beyond some of the provisions that are already in the Strategic Competition Act. In the 116th Congress, the last Congress, Portman and Senator Tom Carper, head of the Senate's Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, ran a year-long study that culminated in a committee report on Chinese threats to the US research enterprise and the introduction of a previous version of this bill happened in 2020. Um, there are provisions of this bill that aim to secure US research and innovation, particularly in higher education institutions from foreign interference and unsanctioned use. Among other things, it would establish a federal research security council, detail new, more comprehensive and more uniform requirements for federal grants information sharing and insider threat assessments, and lower the reporting threshold for foreign gifts to university and research institutions. Then there's the Meeting the China Challenge Act, finally, from the Senate Banking Committee, which was introduced by Chairman Sherrod Brown and Ranking Member Pat Toomey. Um, it restricts commercial engagement mainly through a combination of sanctions and export controls. The sanctions front, um, it urges stepped up use of mandatory sanctions to address a variety of issues with China, including forced labor, Hong Kong, economic espionage, fentanyl, illicit trade with North Korea, and it articulates new sanctions requirements to address Chinese cyber attacks and IP theft. On the export controls front, uh, it requires a 180-day review of export controls on items that could be used to facilitate human rights abuses. It requires the Secretary of Commerce to coordinate with other agencies and determine within 60 days whether additional export controls are needed to protect human rights. Uh, the review would include assessing end use and user risks associated with human rights abuse and determining if greater controls should be placed on items with critical capabilities that can enable activities like censorship. And then there are a bunch of reporting requirements that could lead to more legislation that would further restrict the ability to do business between our two countries. Um, and this, this is just one package. There's a ton of other legislation out there that um, would prevent Chinese companies from listing on U.S. exchanges or would kick them off of U.S. exchanges uh, and many other things. But this is the package that is moving right now that has the greatest chance of passing and making a significant impact on uh, the shape of the future commercial relationship. Great. Okay. Um, 
all very meaty. And I guess first question would for Tilo, because this will then, I can follow up the question for Tilo to, to Tim and Anna. Uh, what's the data show for Europe? So have they had similar declines or are we seeing trade and investment diversion based upon uh, US policy? Uh, th that is an excellent question. And let me maybe um, answer it by saying uh, Chinese outbound investment has uh, dropped globally. Um, so um, um, especially on the M&A side, it's not a specifically uh, a US driven phenomenon. We have Chinese investment peaking in 2016, 2017 across the OECD and really across the world um, and uh, coming on every year since then. Uh, Europe has been holding up a little better in uh, 2018, 2019 in terms of attracting Chinese FDI. But in 2020, uh, Europe has actually been falling even more than, than the US. So it's really not uh, a, a phenomenon that's isolated uh, um, to the US. And I would certainly say looking forward, um, uh, 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 given the uh, um, introduction or tightening of uh, investment screening regimes across the EU and uh, a, a broader uh, reckoning or discussion that is happening within Europe um, about uh, economic relations with China, um, I don't really see um, um, uh, a, a great difference anymore in terms of scrutiny, both politically and regulatory, uh, 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 comparing Europe with, uh, with uh, North America. And Tim, if you hear the same then from your Chinese clients that are thinking about putting, you know, a manufacturing facility, um, you know, in, you know, I have heard from pe from people, you know, where they were considering investing in the United States for a global facility, and they directed it actually not to Europe, but to Canada, because they couldn't export back to China because of the retaliatory tariffs that the Chinese put back in place, but that's one anecdotal example. Well, I don't, I don't have all the data, but if you just try to do an analysis, uh, if you want to sell into the two largest markets in the world, United States and China, uh, you're better off investing and manufacturing in a country that isn't having these kinds of trade frictions with either one of them. Uh, if you manufacture in the U.S., you'll sell into the U.S. market, but you might be caught going to China. If you, if you manufacture in China, you might be caught going the other direction. So uh, a lot of the things that are going on are not, uh, not they're certainly not necessarily uh, leading to a lot more investment in the United States in a lot of, uh, in a lot of cases. And with respect to Europe, I think that uh, Europe has a lot of the same concerns about China's industrial policies and their state-led economic uh, development model that the United States has. And it plays out a little bit differently in different countries because uh, they may have different uh, footprints in their own economies and how China's policies affect them. But I think that uh, you know there was an effort to try to close the, the gap between China and the EU a little bit with the comprehensive agreement on investment. But the Chinese have succeeded in really angering a lot of people in Europe because of other uh, developments, uh, sanctions of European officials and so on. And so I think that uh, at the end of the day, I, I agree with Tilo that uh, investment in Europe uh, and going between Europe and China ultimately are going to uh, face a lot of the same issues and uncertainties and challenges that uh, US-China investment flows face. And 
Anna, is there awareness in kind of the Senate and the House? You I mean you talked about all this legislation about the need to do this multilaterally, or else we're effectively playing whack-a-mole. So <clears throat> we stop them from doing it here, but it just pops up in other places. Yes and no. I, I think you know there are certainly members that understand the importance of a multilateral approach and. Um, and are big supporters of Biden's, you know, commitment to a multilateral approach. But I, I think also it's not Congress's job to carve out a multilateral approach. And there are there are plenty of members who just feel that they need to do what they can that's in their lane to react to what they perceive to be the challenges China presents. And I think the biggest thing. Um, that is that is worth consideration in terms of how this is all going to shake out for for commerce is that uh, a lot of Congress's activity is really driven by national security concerns, geostrategic concerns about the relationship, which is a real change from the last 20 years or so, where um, it felt much more like the commercial relationship was driving big decisions about what the bilateral what our bilateral ties would look like. Um, and those national security concerns do also have a thread that is, you know, thinking about how to ensure that the U.S. is competitive vis-a-vis -vis China now and in the future. But that's not necessarily cleanly tied together with the national security concerns. So there are all sorts of proposals that are about ensuring our competitiveness and proposals that are about ensuring our national security but it, there's like a bit of a disconnect maybe between between those two. And I, I'm not sure that we're going to end up, if, if these things move forward, it's not clear to me that we'll end up in a more secure or more competitive situation as compared to China. I would actually think that it is the responsibility of legislators to craft legislation that only imposes restrictions on Americans when it's done multilaterally, that imposing it unilaterally simply punishes Americans and does this whack-a-mole. I think you mentioned, Anna, the, that they're now, you know, the Trump policy to delist a bunch of Chinese companies is now creeping into legislation. This is without regard to the accounting issue. The accounting issue, uh, you know, getting Chinese companies granting access to their books and records the Chinese are willing to do that. That can be solved very quickly. Um, and that was blocked by the previous administration. But this delisting of CNOOC, uh, China Telecom, China Mobile, um, is basically uh, punishing Americans, punishing Tim's colleagues in New York who were working on IPOs or accounting firms who are working on US listed uh, firms, because that business will simply go to Hong Kong, Singapore, Tokyo, or London. It, it's it's the idea that America is the sole capital market may have been true in 1952, but is not true in 2021. So are they so? Are they aware of this, or is it just you know we're gonna, you know we're just gonna fight this, and if it means Americans suffer, so be it. I um, go ahead. Go ahead oh, I, go ahead. I was simply going to say that I think uh, you have your finger on what what may very well be a misestimation 
by members of Congress of exactly what the United States economic leverage is in the world today. Yeah. I, and I would just add that I think this underscores the important role that the business community continues to play and needs to play in U.S.-China relations. Uh, you know, it's, it's um, often said that we've been the ballast in the bilateral relationship in the past. And I think now, even though things are difficult and there's a lot of uncertainty, we need to help people understand what's at stake and sort of the underlying realities of a lot of these policies. Um, I may have sounded pessimistic, but I was trying to be realistic because I think you can go forward on a more solid basis if, you, if you're realistic about what you're up against. I still think companies should be doing business here, and I think Chinese companies should be doing business in the United States, but they really need to do their homework. What are the concerns that the governments have? How can I fashion a, policy, uh, a business strategy that will address those concerns so that I'll be on solid footing and be on very defensible footing? And then how can I make sure I stay in contact with the governments so that I understand what they need and so that they understand what I need? Those are things that we can do, and I think that ultimately they will make a, a big difference. So I'm, I'm fairly, um, I mean, I, I think that we need to be very much uh, engaged and involved in this exercise and, and not take a passive role at this point. Yeah, Steve, just to add maybe one more data point, right? Um, and so far, um, when, when you look at this particular um, area of, of interaction, um, Chinese investors continue to flock, uh, Chinese companies continue to flock to US capital markets. So the concern that um, Tim and his colleagues in New York are gonna be out of work, uh, so far um, uh, that uh, all the rhetoric and, 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 and the threats that is not spilling over uh, and it's countering some of the market forces, quite the opposite, right? So Chinese equity fundraising in the US has really reached record levels over the past couple of quarters. So, so far, those forces prevail. Uh, and as Tim said, um, you know, you have courts looking into it, you have due process, which I think is the really good news here for, for Chinese companies that- um, Kilo, uh, it's, 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 all, it's marginal. It would have been better without these decisions that the Trump admit that and this delist see so you have to be very careful about NYSE and NASDAQ listed companies versus you know Hong Kong, London, Singapore, or Tokyo. These, as Tim well knows, <laughs> these are subject to New York law. These the it's governed by a whole different regulatory uh, apparatus, which creates jobs in the United States. If the listing is in Hong Kong or the listing is in Shanghai, in, in Singapore, you know, in truth, for Goldman Sachs, for, for Morgan Stanley, even for a lot of the global law firms, it, they have people in all these places. It just moves the business from New York to those places. But there is a cost for American jobs. And it's really important that it's good as kind of our distribution is in the United States and the transparency that our SEC forces on companies, we are killing our role as a global center of the capital market. That we, that, that the Trump administration and now this legislation is taking business from the United States, predominantly from New York and sending it out and not all American companies lose, but Americans do lose. And it's really important the business community understands that and speaks to that, um, because I think the financial services sector is not the most popular sector in this 
in this uh, in this administration. Tilo, the data, I mean, you know, $8.7 billion in economies the size of America and China, it's, it's effectively it's zero. It's de minimis, isn't it? It, it is. It is uh, not what we what we should expect. Certainly, from uh, uh, given given a level of uh, trade and uh, and other bilateral exchange. No, no, no arguments here, Steve. But, so, so, uh, but I, so, but but I do my, think my it's... question then my question is really to kind of end this on an optimistic note. I mean, it is you know at these levels, given the size of these economies and kind of you know my you know as Tim knows, my first experience was negotiating investments in China and watching communities in China changed by American investment. And then later, watching Chinese investment change the community in which my brother lived. You know, it literally, they rebuilt, you know, Fuyao Boli rebuilt uh, the abandoned General Motors facility in Dayton, Ohio, and employed, you know, 2,500 workers, 2,500 families, you know, got off government assistance. So the question I'd want to end with, how do we reverse this? How do we make Chinese investment, both VC and full FDI, and American investment in China work for the peoples of both countries? What do we need to do to kind of change what is a deteriorating, uh, what is, TLO has proven is deteriorating data. Who wants to take that first? Tim. Well, along the lines of, of what I just said, I think that companies looking to invest in either direction, uh, if we understand the priorities of the government, the, the uh, Biden administration has made clear that they want a worker-centric um, uh, trade policy. They've made clear that it needs to uh, take, uh, it needs to be concerned about disadvantaged communities. It needs to be concerned about the environment. Uh, if, if companies come in with proposals that show that they're addressing the concerns of the government, the local government where they want to invest and the national government of the country where they're investing, whether it's a Chinese company coming to the States or a US company coming to China, I think there still are very viable paths forward. And I think we need more of that type of activity. Anna. Yeah. And I think from a different angle, uh, we also need to be encouraging our government officials to be more precise about exactly what their concerns are with, with a rising China and what China challenge means um, so that the policies that they are promulgating are, are also more precise and, and more specific and um, narrow in terms of the limitations that they create tailored to the problems themselves, not these broad ideological mandates um, that probably do more harm than good. Hilo. Yeah, it's it's hard for me to really add, but but uh, maybe historically uh, uh, looking at, at the creation of CFIUS and some of these other instruments. CFIUS was created to keep the door open by defining what the concerns are and defining uh, what, uh, what, um, um, what the US government is going to do uh, for a very small set of, uh, of deals uh, that are concerning. And I think, uh, um, yeah, echoing uh, Tim's and Anna's comments, I think uh, really rapidly figuring out what are uh, areas of concern from, a, from an investment perspective, um, how do we reset uh, these regulatory mechanisms, uh, and how do we give confidence to investors 
that uh, investments in this particular area are uh, okay or not. I think that really is key, creating that transparency um, and predictability uh, to market participants uh, to let investments uh, that are uh, mundane and productive happen and only focus on the ones that, um, that are truly problematic. I see Professor Sullivan asked the same question from Adelphi. Um, is there any way that, I guess it's, it's almost impossible, Tila, but to get the data to somehow reflect what the great, what percentage of the decision not to invest is based upon CFIUS or FIRMA or based upon just a general sense of, of the US or based upon capital controls or based upon, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, we always joke about, you know, how, how if you could create data, would it be 70% capital controls, 30%, you know, the environment in the United States, which is always why I want to see the overlay of Europe. Yeah, I think if you look at global, um, global China outbound data, for example, that, that is a good indicator. Um, with all the caveats, um, but I so doesn't I've, that include BRI though, the global outbound data? Yeah, it it does include uh, BRI, but but it, it is reflective of the domestic conditions and and uh, the, the the Chinese policies that are um, that are impacting some of these outflows. And I think that's a that's one one good way of of taking it apart. But um, um, yeah, as as Tim said, a lot of it is very industry specific. Uh, very much depends on um, on the clusters, on the industry dynamics, on some of the macroeconomic uh, setup. So um, I, I wish I, I could code uh, each transaction for the perfect motivation and then come up with a, a good counterfactual for what, what could have, would have happened. Um, but the only way to really approach it is to, uh, to talk to as many investors as possible and tease it out on a more qualitative level. And um, I think, Steve, going back to your question about capital controls, I mean, that remains uh, a, a major barrier um, on the Chinese side. You know, companies are also tangled up in this in this in this broader reset. Uh, uh, you know, are, are we now supposed to go out and, and engage, or are we supposed to focus more on 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 new uh, on new um, um, autonomy um, um, and and uh, independence uh, dogma? So I think all of that is is playing through on the domestic side and is impacting um, the uh, the risk appetite. Uh, of these firms in addition to greater overseas uh, regulatory scrutiny. Of course, if you extrapolate kind of the portfolio, forget the VC and the FDI, just the portfolio inflows um, that are going to be enormous and be increasing and the financial community's belief that we're seeing an RMB appreciate with literally in the last few days, we've seen a significant RMB appreciation I think it's now about 6.4 and change uh, to the dollar which is a which is a serious um, appreciation and what the Chinese government is going to need to think about is easing those capital controls that ultimately the inflow of too much capital is actually not productive for China either and I think the PBOC, the PBOC people and, and the senior economic leadership understands that. So my guess is we will start seeing liberalization and, and Hong Kong Connect and these various other things are part of that liberalization. Well, Beijing, as everybody else, is dealing with the impossible trinity. And so um, you would have to give up your exchange rate control for that to happen, which is in the current environment. Um,
big question. Um, so yeah, those are some of the domestic pressures that <laughs> Beijing is dealing with. But we have run out of time. I think this discussion uh, fairly reflects what the data said. <laughs> that you know, you you've kind of heard the description of why uh, the data is uh, what TLO has reported is. But I think it's very very valuable to have the data. So TLO, thank you and your team for putting this together. Tim, thank you for getting up early. Um, and being with us this morning. And Anna, thank you for talking to us from the beach. But uh, everybody, thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.